0: Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. This week, we revisit my conversation with Sister Helen Prejean, the tireless activist fighting the death penalty. Her book, Dead Man Walking, tells the story of a ministry to incarcerated people awaiting execution. In 1996, it was made into a motion picture starring Susan Sarandon. The film and book shifted public opinion. That conversation became even more urgent during the pandemic. Prison lockdowns prevented family and friends from visiting, and that included volunteers supporting education programs. But at a maximum security prison near Chicago, one seminary professor resisted. Michelle Clifton-Soderstrom. A decade ago, she began offering a master's program inside the prison, and in the wake of lockdowns, she was determined to find a way in. Reporter Monique Parsons brings us the story.
1: You want a success story? Let me introduce you to Michelle Clifton-Soderstrom. She grew up poor, completed college and graduate school, She's got a great job at a Christian university in Chicago and a cabin in the Michigan woods. As many evangelical Christians would, she thanks Jesus for her good fortune. But when Michelle searches the Bible, she doesn't go straight to the Jesus parts
2: for inspiration. She finds it in the stories of failure, and which are all over Scripture, right? And when you see the stories of failure, whether it's as grand as David, King David's failure— Beyond famously slaying Goliath,
1: David messed up a lot, committed adultery, ordered assassinations, ignored God. Michelle looks past his example, to
2: The failure in the garden or the failures of society and wherever you see those, to, to be able to read those stories and know that the whole story is one of healing, restoration, reconciliation, redemption, all of that. And when you put those two things together, you have the safety to then fail yourself, I think, and know you're going to be picked up. Michelle's in her early 50s. She's got unfussy, long
1: brown hair, dresses a bit like she's ready for a hike, looks you in the eye when she talks. When she walks across the campus at North Park University, where she teaches theology and ethics... A lot of people say hi. With biblical stories of failure on her mind, Michelle did something a few years ago that no one at her seminary or in her state had done. She took those stories straight to men in a place that symbolizes their failure and societies, Stateville Correctional Center. Michelle started Illinois' first master's degree program inside a maximum security prison.
2: Definitely when we first went
1: in, A
2: lot of them were like, what is this white woman doing in here? What does she want?
1: She wants the men inside Stateville to get an education. She wants some of those men to get out. She wants to abolish, or at least profoundly reform, an American prison system she sees as deeply
2: unjust. Public want higher sentences because they're scared of violence and crime, but yet It's not based in real statistics and probabilities. That's part of our work, is changing that. Michelle believes that a lot of that change
1: involves showing up and listening. Before she started going to prison, Michelle taught a course on mass incarceration at North Park Seminary. One of her students there, a young Black man, really challenged her. He urged her to do more than talk.
2: Basically, he said, Michelle, you you teach all this great stuff. How are you really living this?
1: In 2010, he inspired her to ask the school for a semester off, a sabbatical. And she made a plan.
2: I started thinking about, okay, who doesn't have access to theological education? I believe in it. I thought prisons, prisons lock up disproportionately people of color, people who have been through trauma, people who come from low-income, economically distressed neighborhoods, uh, victims of domestic abuse and violence. These are the people we lock up. She made
1: the first of many drives west from her house in Chicago, across the Des River, to a notorious maximum security lockup in the middle of 2,000 acres of cornfields and meadow, down a wide driveway lined with trees. At the end of that road, Stateville looks stuck in time. Tall, iron gates a red-brick guardhouse almost a century old, the words Illinois State Penitentiary, carved in stone above the door. Beyond the gatehouse runs a 30-foot wall stained with decades of mud and rust. Beyond that, 2,000 men. Michelle walked through metal detectors and checkpoints and gate after gate after gate. She wound up in a classroom with men serving life sentences, In a course called Women in the Bible, she saw them grapple with scripture and with themselves. In the stories about Sarah, Rachel, Mary, they saw their own sisters and mothers,
2: girlfriends, and wives. I was so moved by some of their stories and the ways they were owning how they had dehumanized women in their life and how they had seen that modeled in their homes and yet they weren't able to break those cycles.
1: Discussing the Bible behind bars felt powerful Mm -hmm. to Michelle and to her students. Benny Benny Rios says she's one of the best teachers he'd ever had.
3: You know, there's there's a a sense of love. There's a sense of, of brotherhood and sisterhood. You know, it doesn't just end with, well, Once you you done with the program that says, you know, bye-bye, have a nice life, and we hope you do well. No, it's, it's a connection. When we took the second class, they started giving us credits, and then from there, we just, you know, we asked for more. We wanted a degree.
1: Benny's from a Latino neighborhood in Chicago. He grew up around gangs, joined one himself. In his early 20s, a jury convicted him of shooting a man to death.
3: I'm 43 years old. I've been locked up for 19 years now.
1: Benny's got a wife who loves him, two stepdaughters. He's taken just about every class he can take behind bars, writing, urban studies, theology, and law. He saw that Michelle took his ambition seriously, saw he wants to be more than a missionary or a model prisoner. He wants to go home. Michelle's classes focused on restorative justice, peacemaking, and prison reform skills the men could use inside and outside for those able to get there. So far at Stateville, it's reached more than 200 men. When we spoke, Benny was one of 80 on track to earn master's degrees from North Park University.
3: Any type of ministerial work
4: you want to do or even all the way down to helping you manage your
3: finances. So it's not just a spiritual thing, but it's holistic. They're looking out for every aspect of our lives.
1: The relationship between the prison and the university continues to grow. North Park covers tuition. In non-pandemic times, graduate students from the seminary drive to the prison and join the classes. Undergrads helped the Stateville students publish a newsletter. And a teacher helped the men write a play based on their life stories. A Chicago theater plans to stage it when the pandemic eases. Michelle grew up outside Minneapolis. Her divorced mom taught life skills and coached basketball in a juvenile detention center.
2: We didn't have a beautiful house or a lot of other things, but people liked to be at our house. And I think a lot of that was because my mom loved kids and young people and she was just welcoming. Even when she wasn't there, you could feel it. Michelle
1: read widely and kept her mind open. She studied liberation theology, a field that blends Christian scripture, spiritual practice, and social justice, works by people like James Cohn and Gustavo Gutierrez. Their books inform what she teaches her students inside Stateville. America's prisons and jails incarcerate about 2 million people, and a disproportionate share look like most of Michelle's students, black and Latino men. Black men get locked up in state and federal prisons at five times the rate of white men. COVID-19 hit them hard. By spring 2021, one of every three prisoners in Illinois had tested positive for the virus, three times the rate on the outside. Stateville locked down in mid-March 2020 to try to stop the spread. Volunteer and family visits stopped. In-person education stopped. COVID-19 nearly destroyed Michelle's program. And before figuring out fast how to save it, Michelle had goodbyes to say. At least 88 people in Illinois prisons have died. Two of them were Michelle's students. She led their funerals over Zoom. Good afternoon, everyone. She got prison officials' permission to use that platform, invited the men's relatives, North Park professors, classmates from the seminary.
2: Joseph Tremaine.
1: Wilson. Joseph spent half his life locked up on a murder conviction. He was 44 years old when he died. One by one, his teachers and friends sang, prayed, read his poetry, called him by his nickname, Big Fella. His widow didn't have an internet connection, so one of Michelle's colleagues got her on FaceTime and held a cell phone up to the computer so she could watch. She heard them describe her husband as a gentle soul a man of faith, a good friend. Many people on the outside saw only his murder conviction. Michelle's other student who died was doing time for sexually assaulting
2: and killing a child. We did receive some contact from the victim's family. You know, how could you take this student and, you know, celebrate? It's really hard. And so to say to the persons who reached out to us, we see you, we hear your voice, we claim him as our own, and we also know that this is one of the deepest forms of brokenness that anyone could weather.
1: To deal with Stateville's COVID restrictions, Michelle and her team at the seminary scrambled with prison staff to keep its courses going. Together, the institutions managed to transform an intensely personal master's degree program based on face-to-face instruction and deep conversations into a kind of old-fashioned correspondence course. There's a sort of small army on the ground. It begins with her students inside Stateville. They do all their studying and writing in their cells. The guards don't allow real pens or pencils. They fear those writing tools can become weapons. So the men write with tiny rubbery pencils and pass their finished essays through the bars. Every Tuesday morning, the Stateville education director collects the homework and carries a cardboard banker's box filled with paper out front of the parking lot where awesome. a North Park staff member waits.
2: Hi! I'm good. How are you?
1: Hopefully I didn't keep you waiting that long. Michelle's assistant director puts the box in her trunk and drives an hour back to the seminary. There, she scans the homework and emails it to professors and fellow students for feedback. Later, she prints and collates everything in packets for each student to take back to the prison. They use a lot of paper. Yesterday was like 3,000 pages.
2: Michelle says the Stateville students work hard and get creative. When the lockdown happened and they weren't able to get easy access to writing advisors, we had a student in the same who were in the same cell block house. They were on different galleys or floors, and one was a writing advisor, and the student who needed help literally tied his paper to a string and then to a water bottle and threw it out the galley down to the guy and said, I want the guy in cell number, whatever, 640 to to get this and read it and give me feedback and then I'll pull it back up.
1: Everybody calls Oscar Parham smiley. It fits. He smiles a lot. When we're on the phone and I call him Oscar, he corrects me. He enrolled in Michelle's program early on. She got him writing
3: poetry. She would get us involved by having us get up in front of the class. I've always been scared to speak in front of people. She She gave me a voice. She gave everybody a voice in the class.
1: This training helped when he went before the prison review board to ask the governor for clemency.
3: I was locked up for 30 years for a case I didn't do.
1: It involved a double murder. Two men shot during a drug deal. Prosecutors knew Oscar didn't pull the trigger. He wasn't even at the scene of the crime. He got sent to prison under a guilt by association law, meant to round up gang members. When he refused a plea deal, his sentence got even longer. Michelle showed up for him.
3: She was there at my clemency hearing. That was the thing that shocked my family. They thought that they were the only ones that were going to be there. Michelle led a charge where she brought... A whole bunch of people from the school, which made a big difference because it showed that I not only had support from my family, I had support from people outside of my family.
1: Out of a thousand clemency petitions in the state each year, usually only two or three prisoners go free. In 2019, Oscar was one of them. The day he got the news, a group from North Park came to congratulate him in person, and they brought along Lauren Daigle, a Christian rock star who's one of his favorite singers. When Oscar got out, Michelle helped him find a job, got him a dorm room at North Park, helped him sign up for classes. Oscar's married now. He owns a house and mentors young men and boys. He's pursuing a master's degree in pastoral ministry. He knows his story gives hope to his classmates on the inside, Hope is all some of them have. The laws aren't really on their side. Illinois has one of the most punitive sentencing systems in the nation. In 1998, the state determined that anyone convicted of murder had to serve their full sentence. No time off for good behavior, no consideration for their studies or for skills they've learned. No parole. This surprises a lot of people, even some politicians. Illinois is a blue state. Democrats have run politics there for decades. There's no death penalty in Illinois, thanks in part to George Ryan, one of several governors in recent years who did prison time after he held office. He argued the capital punishment system was haunted by the demon of error. Still, the law doesn't allow for these guys to get second chances. Michelle wants politicians to see the real effect of that.
2: We work with legislators and state legislators, we've contacted the governor's office. In fact, the lieutenant governor um, has met with a number of our students to to get their feedback on sentencing laws. One of those was her student, Benny.
3: I got locked up for first-degree murder uh, uh, and sentenced to 45 years in in prison uh, under the Truth and Sentencing Act, which means I have to serve 100% of my time.
1: If things don't change... Benny will be in prison until the year 2047. He's one of Michelle's best students. The Evangelical Covenant Church invests in Michelle's program with money, support staff, faculty, and students' time. It's gotten so much buy-in from the church because that's what this church is supposed to be doing. She says it manifests the New Testament Gospel of Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me.
2: These are the people we lock up. It's the poor, the sick, um, the the stranger,
1: right? But in 2021, Michelle says, too many white evangelicals of all denominations cling to false notions of identity and miss Jesus' message. Michelle's seminary, North Park, is the flagship school of the Evangelical Covenant Church. Swedish immigrants founded this tiny Protestant denomination more than 100 years ago. And while there's still plenty of Swedes like Michelle, people of color make up nearly a third of the denomination. It's one of the most diverse mainstream Protestant churches.
2: We know, as we've seen in the last few years, the way especially white evangelicalism has associated with power, misused power, has been part of the insurrections that took place in early January. The Christian nationalism, which is, which is very deeply embedded in our evangelical world, that kind of racism and white supremacy is not new.
1: As a kid and later as a student at a small Christian college in Minnesota, Michelle knew a lot of white evangelicals, people who looked like her, worshiped beside her in church. She knew some who looked down on people who weren't like them. Within her small, relatively diverse denomination, racism
2: persists. It was there when I was growing up. I saw it, didn't recognize it for what it was. But I think the reason I was so late to that was because I did feel the kind of racial superiority that is very much a part of white evangelicalism.
1: The word evangelical is pretty loaded these days. Lots of whites in that category supported former President Trump, so many assume all evangelicals are politically right-wing. But the term is more about an attitude toward Jesus. Evangelicals see his death and resurrection as a story with transformative power, one they feel called to share. That student who inspired Michelle to visit Stateville, he's an ordained evangelical covenant minister now. His name is Dominique Gilliard. He trains other clergy in racial reconciliation, and he taught a course with Michelle at Stateville.
3: She never presents herself as a finished product. For me personally, it's even more powerful than her ability to talk about the work she's had to do at her willingness to continue to say, like, there's still work before me, as much as I've already done, as much as I've already learned that this is a lifelong journey that I'm constantly going to have to be unlearning stuff to be the best version of myself. Jamal Bakker is
1: 37 years old. He's been locked up since he was 18, serving a 60-year sentence for murder. When we speak on the phone, I want to get a taste of what it's like to sit in class with him. Something nobody's been able to do for more than a year. We talk about his favorite books on a reading list filled with intellectuals and activists.
3: is anything that he writes uh, uh, Theology of liberation, any James Cone, The Crossing the Lynching Tree, Black Theology. Uh, my favorite author is James Baldwin, so anything that he writes the fire next time, my favorite book.
1: Jamal tells me about seeing a man get shot when he was a kid talks about the times he got shot when he was a teen, walks me through his recent essay on theology and suicide. A scholarly journal plans to publish it. In the photos of Jamal on the North Park Seminary website, he has a chiseled face and an intense gaze. He looks that way in his mugshot, too. On the streets, Jamal was known as Little Capone, a nickname he took on when he realized his birthday is the anniversary of Al Capone's death. Inside, he's a different kind of leader. He's on a new council to give prisoners a voice about prison conditions. He also mentors other men. He has a wife, a family. And as our 20-minute call nears its end, he tells me that Michelle's program is in high demand inside.
3: In my experience, most churches come to prison and they, they give you the same spill. They're here to save you, but there's nothing beyond that.
1: He's seen Michelle, her colleagues, and the seminary students go beyond that. They've shown him that being Christian is about more than saving souls.
3: And if we were successful, if we were like saving every person in prison, right? In Illinois, it'd be 40,000 Christians in prison, right? Then what? You know what I mean? And for me, for Michelle and I have talked about this at length. It's like, if that would be the equivalent of being on a sinking ship. And instead of passing out life vests, we're passing out Bibles,
1: Jamal turned 18 two days before the murder that sent him to prison. If the court had tried him as a juvenile, he would have been eligible for parole. He's appealing his sentence. If Michelle can testify, she'll say that Jamal is a powerful teacher and role model in prison. That he's taught her about empathy and perseverance. That he's earned a second chance.
3: I've never been a part of a community so saving, so, so invested. We're, we're, all I can say like we save each other and that's what a community is supposed to do, right?
1: Jamal hopes to get out of Stateville one day. If he does, Michelle and her community at North Park will be waiting. Until then, they'll meet him where he is. This story was reported by
0: Monique Parsons, the managing editor of Interfaith America, an online journal that focuses on interfaith engagement and religious pluralism. It is part of the Sacred Steps series produced by the KALW's The Spiritual Edge in collaboration with USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. Cheryl Duvall is the Sacred Steps editor, Tarek Fauda is the engineer, and Judy Silbert is the executive editor. When we come back, we revisit my 2019 conversation with Sister Helen Prejean, reflecting on her journey and calling to end the death penalty. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. you're listening to inspired a production of interfaith voices i'm umbreen khan this week we revisit my conversation with sister helen Prejean, the tireless activist fighting the death penalty when we met in the studio to talk about her new memoir, Sister Prejean bemoaned the Trump administration's 2019 decision to end the federal moratorium and resume executions. On July 1st of 2021, the Biden administration's Department of Justice announced the reimposition of the federal moratorium pending review of Trump-era policies. When the movie Dead Man Walking hit theaters, about 80% of Americans supported capital punishment. Now, it's just 50%. And religious voices have long been part of the debate. This conversation from 2019 explores how Sister Prejean found her way into her role as one of the most well-known faith-based advocates to end the death penalty. It's a journey she documents in her memoir, River of Fire, It is, in many ways, a prequel to Dead Man Walking, which is where our conversation begins.
4: The first thing Tim Robbins, when we do in the film of Dead Man Walking, first thing he explained to me was the difference between art and propaganda. So he says, I, in my DNA molecules, am against the death penalty. So I could shape a story. So we do the crime early on, then it kind of fades. Mm. Then you see the one who did the murder, the audience is following. He goes through a conversion. You're with him. Then you see him executed. You see him asking forgiveness. And you forget about the victims. And the boldest thing that he did was when they did the final editing of the film, he said everyone else on the editing group was saying to him, Tim end the film Dead Man Walking with the execution of Matthew Ponslet because you have the audience. He's been through his conversion. Don't show the murders again. Mm. And Tim said, I don't want to have the audience. So he juxtaposes at the end of Dead Man Walking, you see the execution of Matthew Ponslet, and then you see his crime in the woods of killing one of the innocent people there in the woods, and it leaves the audience Torn Between the Two. The one thing Tim felt wonderful about was he got letters from victims' families saying, thank you for the way you portrayed us. You didn't portray us as these frenzied people saying, kill them, kill them, I want you to kill them. Shows the real agony and struggle. So the audience struggled too. So Dead Man Walking, which came out end of 95, got four nominations, and Susan got the Oscar It changed the way death penalty films were done in the United States. It changed the discourse because when you do art, you honestly bring people over to two sides of a question. You let them sort it out. When you do propaganda, you shape the story in a way you can only come out one way.
0: And his movie didn't do that.
4: No, no. It was... It was really great. I mean, and you got to know that it was Susan Sarandon that made the film happen. She read the book, uh, Dead Man Walking, as soon as it came out in paperback in 94. Look how quickly things happened. Hardback, A Dead Man, 93. Paperback, 94. Susan reads it, 94. By the end of 95, we have a first-class film. That's all God working for me. <laughs> you just get your little boat on the wave, but boy, that wave, the wave, it uh and then she got the Academy Award. And there were one point three billion people watching that night.
0: It also changed the way in which we think about and talk about and engage in these social justice yes. um discourse. Mm-hmm. And are you still involved today? Are oh, you yeah. still engaged? Well what I'm have you with been the seventh
4: person accompanying on Death Row, Manuel Ortiz. The, he's the third out of the seven people I've accompanied on death row who's innocent. Mm. That's how broken the system is, because it's poor people who can't get a cracker jack of defense and no resources to do independent forensic testing. You're supposed to have the adversarial way of coming to truth at trial, but when you have all poor people selected for death, you don't have that. And over 90% of the 166 wrongfully convicted people who've gotten off a death row is because of prosecutorial misconduct. Prosecutors get in there. They're in control of the evidence, and they want to win. Mm. Winning is their object, not justice. And you have all these mistakes, man. So anyway, what I've learned along the way, I learned about the criminal justice system. I've learned about how the law works. And I have learned that you can meet human beings who have done unspeakable acts, and see that everybody is worth more than the worst thing they've ever done, which is where the message of Jesus and the gospel and Christianity comes in. I hate to see the way politicians pervert Christianity and use it for their own purposes. Like Jeff Sessions, the former attorney general, when he quoted Romans 13 to justify the separation of children from their parents at the border. You have this proof texting that goes on where people select a biblical quote. And in this case, Jeff Sessions, as Justice Scalia did before with the death penalty, quoted Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans 13, where they say, obey civil authority, that's the authority of God. They don't have the context when that scripture was written that it was that the Jews were squabbling with each other so much in Rome that it had made the emperor ban all the Jews from Rome. So in that context, Paul is saying to the Jewish people, Obey civil authority. Stop all these stupid squabbles. Gee, that's a voice of God for you. But then when you want a proof text, you absolutize that and say, If something is the law in the United States, like you cannot illegally come across this border and these human beings coming here for asylum come illegally and they bring their children, we're justified in separating children from the parents. And that's how religion is used to justify wrongful things that hurt and even kill people, even the death penalty. So I've seen how religion is used. So one of the reasons I wrote River of Fire— to talk about the spiritual journey that led me to death row in the first place is getting Jesus right. Well, let's talk about that. Christianity right.
0: Thank you for that perspective and for connecting the process. In reading, I found you making connections and toggling between the things that we're wrestling with today to things that you've seen and our legacy, our historical engagement. We always
4: do that. We hopefully do that. Then we understand. Well, well, that's what spiritual reflection is about. It's what's a connection here? What's a meaning in my life? The gift of Vatican II to the Catholic Church was, let's take this faith and all the documents and all that and look at our personal experience and life in the world and connect so that we get meaning. It was the first council we ever had in the Catholic Church not to condemn heresy as somebody else. It was how do we relate to the world in a meaningful way with the gospel of Jesus that has so much to offer about compassion instead of retribution on it. Right.
0: What is Vatican
4: II for those of yeah, us right. who well, are not
0: familiar with it and may not be up on our sure. papal history?
4: It was an ecumenical council in the Catholic Church that happened from 62 to 65 under the leadership of Pope John the Twenty Third who was a little roly-poly guy who smoked that the curia voted to be pope, thinking he'd be an interim pope. He hardly was an interim pope. Two months into the papal office, he said, I was praying, and the Holy Spirit has told me it's time for us to have a council on the church where we can update the church, open the windows of the church, take a look at the dogmas and teachings of the church, look at the time in which they were written, to make sense for our faith in a way that we haven't before. That happened in 62 to 65. It really affected nuns because when I went into the community in 57, it was in the old style of you practice blind obedience to a superior, you keep silence, you pray for the world, you go out to teach, but you're separated from the world because basically the world is an evil or a sinful place.
0: So really sequestered. Or semi, sequestered. Because we're
4: what you call an apostolic order. Our, our purpose is to serve. It's not just to be a cloistered nun, contemplative and only praying for the world.
0: What drew you at the age of 18 to become a nun?
4: I'm going to tell you there were dynamic models. Our sisters that taught us at St. Joseph Academy in Baton Rouge. I wanted to be a teacher. So that you had a fine intellectual life. They were great teachers. They challenged us, taught us how to think. They were humorous. They were funny. I mean, they were really human, and they had deep faith. And I wanted that. In those days, in the 50s, you became a nun or you got married. If you were a poor single woman, you were nothing. It was just like neither fish nor flesh. So I chose the nun part, came from a good Catholic family, And I wanted to learn how to pray. I wanted to live out of the deep interior of my life. And I knew that as a nun, I would be given all kinds of resources and time for a spiritual life. I'd be able to make retreats. I'd always be going to conferences. That I'd be with fellow searchers in the spiritual life where the spiritual life would be prized. And I have not been disappointed.
0: What happens when you decide, I've been called? Take us back to what, what that experience was like well, in
4: the first couple of days. Well, I write about it in River of Fire, leaving my Baton Rouge home with my wonderful family, Mama, Daddy, Marianne, Louie, and crying all the way to New Orleans to the division. Mm. But driving up and wiping away my tears, and you have to enter into your life. Can't think about home. I'm always going to be crying I got to embrace this life because it was stark. You get up at quarter to five in the morning, you know, prayer and study, and, and I did. I believe, and I think this is a deep Zen thing. There's a common thing in all religious traditions about when we enter into something and embrace the present moment and give ourselves over to what we're called to do. This would be true of a student, a doctor, anybody. Then the grace meets you there. We had a maxim in the community, never leap ahead of grace, Sometimes waking up at 5 o'clock in the morning, you couldn't think of, I don't know if I can do this the rest of my life. (laughs) We had a sister in the division, Freddie. She'd get up in the morning. She'd kiss her bed after she made it, and she'd say, I'll be back to you as soon as I can get back. You can't take on your whole life, but you take it on a day at a time. I use the image of river in this book Mm -hmm. because it's like you ride a current, the present moment to handle it, and then – The fire part comes, of course, with God's grace where a passion is enkindled in us. Is that what
0: the fire is? That's what the
4: fire is, is the passion. And in the preface of River of Fire, the fire and the death penalty came from the witnessing. And this was Patrick Sonia. He was the first person I accompanied on death row. And here's the fire. It's, it's an account of his execution on the night, early morning hours, of April 5th, 1984. They killed a man with fire one night. They strapped him in a wooden chair and pumped electricity through his body until he was dead. His killing was a legal act. No religious leaders protested the killing that night, but I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. And what I saw set my soul on fire, a fire that burns in me still. And here is an account of how I came to be in the killing chamber that night and the spiritual currents that brought me there. So when I say no religious leaders protested, we actually had an archbishop in New Orleans at the time who had been in the military who was for the death penalty. So from that night and the witnessing of that man being strapped down and rendered defenseless and killed began my dialogue with my Catholic Church about the death penalty and the nation, with the American people, about bringing people close to this to say, is this really who we are? Even with prisoners of war in the Geneva Convention, you cannot take a prisoner of war, render them defenseless, and take them out and shoot them. And that's what the death penalty is, an essential act where you render a person defenseless and kill them. So I knew coming out of that execution chamber in the middle of the night, Louisiana, after Pat had been executed, first thing I did was I threw up. I vomited. I'd never witnessed an act like that, of that deliberate killing. And then I remember thinking of the American people, like they're good people. We have good people in the United States people had been made to be afraid. There are some murderers who, by their very nature, you can't put them in prison, they'll kill again, that the only way we can be safe is to execute them. And when people are made to be afraid, as is happening at the southern border right now, we're being told that these people coming to our border are rapists and drug dealers and gang members who want to hurt us, who want to take our jobs. When we're made to be afraid, And we don't see the reality of what's happening. There have been two court cases to try to make executions public, and they've both been defeated. It's a secret ritual that still goes on. And I was brought in as a witness, so my job was to tell the story. Been doing it ever since. Now, River of Fire is the spiritual journey that led to the awakening, finally, that the gospel of Jesus is about more than just being charitable to people around you. And praying for God to solve the problems of the world, it's as Pope Francis is urging us, is the church ought to be a field hospital out where the hurt and marginated and voiceless and people being killed are. And then to bring compassion there and to help change this system of government killing.
0: This is Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. We continue my conversation with Sister Helen Prejean. She's written a memoir, River of Fire, reflecting on her journey and life becoming a powerful force in the death penalty movement. Let's get back to the conversation, where I ask Sister Prejean for her thoughts about women in the Roman Catholic Church today, with Pope Francis at the helm. There is in the Catholic Church a growing discourse on the role of women, and you've been a voice in that. With Pope Francis, how have you engaged in conversation with him? Have you? And, and how are you feeling about where he is moving? The church when it comes to the role of women and their leadership?
4: Yeah. Well, you got to realize that when you're talking about, and you use the word church, you're talking about a whole body of people. One gift of Vatican II was for the first time, they defined the church as the people of God, not simply the hierarchy. Even today, when people are angry at the church, they say, I'm so mad at the church. They're talking about what some bishop did or some priest or something. The church is the people. So about women, I got to meet Pope Francis through a man who was innocent in Oklahoma, Richard Glossop, and enlisted the Pope's help in saving his life. And the Pope, he intervened, and he was part of it to save Richard Glossop's life. But in the process, when I got to meet the Pope, I handed him a personal letter, and it was about a terrible wound in the church, which is that the voices and wisdom of women is not heard in decisions the church is making. And it is not a healthy church to have all males all the time making all the policies and decisions. That's just not healthy. And we can see there's a lot of unhealthiness in the priesthood in the church, in the church itself. If the church truly is the people of God and everybody baptized women as well as men, we need that full wisdom and that full healthiness. We need the full participation of women in leadership in the church as well. And I said to the Pope, I said, I have preached before the UN, before Congress, in many churches. but Protestant churches? Protestant churches all over the place. And the synagogue... But in my own Catholic church, I cannot preach, and I cannot even proclaim the gospel at mass. Only a male can do that. That's distorted. That's not according to the gospel of Jesus, and it needs to change, and it is going to change, simply because what's not true and what's not whole is not going to last. So we have a growing number of voices of women just saying, you need us to be whole and to be healthy. So when you ask the question of priesthood, of course, what is it that simply by being a woman means that you cannot lead people in prayer? We have to ask that question. And then when you say, well, the answer is that it's got to be men. And then when you look at the arguments, because Jesus was a man, that is a purely accidental argument that has nothing to do with the spirit of who Jesus was about and what it means to be a spiritual leader. So you got to recognize the argument for what it is, purely sexism. Paul said, there is no man, no woman, no slave, no free, that when you come to Christians, you look at the gifts of the person and the spirit within the person. There's nothing about a woman who can't be a leader, a spiritual leader, as much as a man. So I've seen in 35 years of dialogue on the death penalty that things can change. I've been engaged with my church on that issue, and things have changed. Consciousness changes, and when consciousness changes, the culture of something changes. And I believe that same thing is going to happen around women in the church.
0: Well, I'm curious how a new generation is coming up in response to this, because the role of women is one, but it's also the wrestling with accountability and repairing the lost trust over the number of systemic reports of abuse that have dominated not just the headlines, but discussion about the
4: future of the Catholic Church. Well, you know what? The whole thing is, I use the symbol of river and fire for this awakening to what faith is. And Christianity, or Christian faith, is the following of Jesus and being him in the world. It's always going to be deeper and more true than what the institutional church is going to be able to embody. So there are all kinds of pockets of life within a religious tradition, communities of faith, like people who are in the Catholic worker movement and are there with the homeless and with the poor. Pockets of individual Christians who get in there and live the gospel. So the Christian life is always going to be about a prayer life, a deep interior life of meditation, so that we operate from the inside out and are not just following some stimulus response. It's always going to be about community, Of people. And it's always going to be about where the wounded, where the hurt, where's compassion and justice needed in the world. And that takes many different forms. The form of religious life, nuns, is taking now is young girls of 18 are not coming into the convent and making a lifelong vow of celibacy, poverty, and obedience. But through associates, women join with religious orders. Mm And so you live your life, but you deepen your spiritual life, and then you join together in ministry to serve the world. The conversations arising out a River of Fire, so interesting, because I've done it in about eight different cities now, and it's just an audience of people. I have a starter conversation. I share what led to the book and so forth, and you open it to people. So the conversation is opening up of how do I have... A deep spiritual life? How do I develop and strengthen my deep spiritual self? What's a connection between my deepest dreams and desires and having a purpose in the world, doing something meaningful? How do I not give in to the cynicism and the hopelessness when you just see especially in leadership in the United States right now, where you just see such a moral bankruptcy of leadership, and you see people rising up in communities. Jesus talked about wheat and weeds always coming up together side by side, and that's what it all is.
0: Well, so you're in a room and you're having conversation and these big questions come up around the conversation of River of Fire. How do you respond to the amount of cynicism and the overwhelming feeling of paralysis that so many people describe today, especially around our politics and the feeling that voices are not being heard.
4: The big thing I've discovered about hope is if you're watching from the sidelines and you're just looking at the news, you lose hope more and more and more. You get more and more cynical. But when you're engaged, however small, but you have your hand on some rope, where you're with a community of people engaged in making a difference, life flows through you. It's non action that leaves us paralyzed. It's when we begin to act, life flows through us. And then suddenly, we may not even realize it, but we're engaging in hope.
0: That was Sister Helen Prejean the nun behind the book and film that galvanized opposition to the death penalty in America. We were discussing her 2019 memoir, River of Fire, about the spiritual underpinnings of her life. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any portion, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. And while you're there, you can learn more about us. Check out the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. You can also subscribe to our podcast anywhere you listen. Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, you can help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. A special thanks to MC Yogi for our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions, and a big shout out to our founder, Sister Maureen Fiedler. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy and Lauren Marco. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show and distribute it to public radio stations around the country. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.